According to a PBS NewsHour article, it stated that a 2015 report from the Treatment Advocacy Center showed people with untreated mental illnesses are 16 times more likely to be shot and killed by police. Renee Davis was a 23-year-old Native American woman living on the Muckleshoot Indian Reservation in Washington State. When, in October 2016, police responded to her home to check on her welfare, despite various reports contradicting the events of that night, what we know for sure is that Renee tragically lost her life. This is the story of Renee Davis. Hey guys, this is Ash. This is Shiashi. This is Maggie, and you're listening to We Are Resilient. So guys, I got to be honest, I've been struggling the last couple days because I've been dealing with this really annoying whistle in my nose and I can't get it to stop, but it's very, very annoying. It's probably that nose ring you have, and it's just air escaping through that earring. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I didn't even think of that. Well, you just solved a mystery that I've been driving myself crazy with the last few days. So what's going on, guys? Ash, what have you been up to lately? I read this book, actually, Verity. Have y'all heard of it? Yeah, I haven't read it. If it's not paranormal romance, chances are I probably haven't read it. You should read it. What's, what's it about? I don't want to tell you. Oh, okay, great. I want you to read it. Like, it's that good. All of her okay. books are love stories, though. I mean, it's kind of a love story, but it's not. Like, you, when you read it, you're going to think, you're, you're, you're going to have so many emotions. You're going to be mad. You're going to be sad. And it ends like, oh, my God. Like, there were a couple of times, you know, I was like, oh, my God. It's really good. And it's a short read. It won't take you but, like, two or three days to read it. Is that how long it took you? It took me, like, three weeks to read it because I don't have time. But I would read it, like, I downloaded it on my iPad. You know, the one I got back that was stolen. The one that you got back from Roger? <laughs> well, Raj and Asheville. Uh, yeah. And so then it would be on my phone. So then I could just, like, pull it out and read it whenever I was sitting somewhere. I'm not a love love story kind of person either. I love love. If it doesn't have a happily ever after, I don't want to read it. They make me happy. All of her books are like love story based. So that's why I was like, yeah, mm, I'm not reading that. See, that's why I like K-dramas. Most of the time, they all have happy endings. So basically, I'm left with unrealistic expectations in life. Yeah, this one doesn't have a ha- I mean, it, it really doesn't have a happy ending. This one doesn't. I'm telling you, mm-hmm. you like it. If I liked it, you'll like it. I'll have to try it out. For this past weekend, um, Maggie and I attended a gala. Is it gala or gala? I never know. I think the proper pronunciation is gala. Gala. It's a weird country and we say gala. Gotcha. (laughs) Yeah, at this one, I don't think I've ever felt more of a hot mess. I kept mispronouncing fancy words and it was just all over the place. I'm glad Maggie was sitting at my table trying to keep me on track. Well, that and she tried to twist off her wine bottle that had a cork in it. (laughs) I didn't know it had a cork. I thought I could just pop the top off. (laughs) She was like, no. I was like, well, can you open this for me? Well, aside from having to babysit me at the gala, Maggie, how was your weekend? We went to the gala and it was fun. And then we came home and hung out and that was pretty much it. It was a beautiful weekend, though. It's finally fall. And that's why everyone has a runny nose. (laughs) So aside from everybody getting sick from this like really sudden weather change, I just love fall. Fall just makes me happy. But to be honest, I am pretty excited about our annual Cherokee Indian 
fair coming up this week. I'm very, very pumped about it. And Boys to Men will be here. Boys to Men. I cannot tell you how excited I am for this. I don't really understand this Boys to Men concert. I don't know how we managed to get Boys to Men to come to our fair this year. But I will tell you, I can sing some I'll Make Love to You in the car. I'll be hitting them vocal runs. Don't worry, if you can't make it up here or you can't get tickets, I will be more than happy to serenade you to the sounds of I'll Make Love to You, Motown Philly, on Bended Knee, uh, in the parking lot. You're showing the parking lot. $5 donation. (laughs) Yes, a $5 donation to the pod. And I will sing I'll Make Love to You like you want me to. Did you guys see what I did there? (laughs) (laughs) For $10 should the lot at the concert. Just let us know in the comments <laughs> what you want. Like and subscribe. <laughs> oh gosh, we're going to lose listeners. They're going to be like, we did not sign up for this. Before we get into the case I have for you guys, um, October and November are going to be some very busy months for us here on the pod. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and we know that the prevalence of intimate partner violence and domestic violence are exceptionally high in indigenous communities, and they definitely play a factor in a lot of the cases that we've covered so far. Um, Native American, shoot, guys, I'm losing it. November is Native American Heritage Month, and it marks our official one year anniversary of We Are Resilient. So real quick, guys, how do you feel about this upcoming milestone for our little podcast? I think it's hard to believe we've been doing it for a year. I feel like we've been doing it for 10 years. <laughs> really? I feel like we haven't been doing it that long. Oh, she's like, it's going on and on. <laughs> no, not 10 yeah. years, but it, it has gone fast. It seems like we've been doing it a lot longer than a year. But I guess with all the planning and stuff, we really have been doing it for over a year. That is true. There's a lot that goes into trying to prepare to start a podcast and a lot to learn. So we did spend a good amount of time before we actually released our first episode. So I I can see your point, (laughs) but we do have a few MMIW presentations coming up that we've been asked to speak on. We'll be sharing those events on our social media. So be on the lookout for that. And if you're in the area and want to attend, uh, stop by and see us. Uh, We also have a really big surprise in store for you guys. Dare I say a first, um, can I say what it is without giving away all the details yet? Yeah, you can say it I don't think it's, yeah, I don't think it's a secret. Well, we are doing our very first live show to celebrate our one year anniversary. Um, so if you're a fan of the show, you can come see us live. Uh, we'll be sharing those details in the coming weeks. So just be ready for that. Okay. So today's episode is covering a sensitive and controversial subject. And it's something that tremendously affects people of color, but we cannot not talk about it because it happens and it happens to our indigenous men and women. The U.S. Census data from 2019 shows that Native Americans make up 0.9% of the population. Looking at the CDC's fatal injury data on firearm deaths between 2009 and 2019 uh, from legal intervention, meaning injuries inflicted by police, Native people were 2.2 times more likely to be killed by police than white people and 1.2 times more likely than black people. This means that Native American people are killed in police encounters more than any other ethnic group, according to the CDC. 
but their voices are rarely heard regarding police brutality. So as you may have guessed, today's case involves a police-related shooting. And before we fully dive into the case, I got some, some more data to read for you guys. So I read this interesting article from Taryn Powell for the WUWM 89.7. And this article included the information I just mentioned, but it also shared some comments from a PhD in economics from the University of South Carolina. And his name was Matthew Harvey, and he had studied police violence. And he said he didn't know the extent to which Native people are killed by police until he did his own research. And so he looked at the 9th Federal Reserve District, which includes northwestern Wisconsin. So it was just this area that he looked at. He says the numbers could have changed since 2017, which is when his data stops. But this is what he found. He said, quote, Native American females are 38 times as likely to die at the hands of police relative to their white counterparts where Native American males are 14 times as likely. Both of the statistics are terrible, but the fact that it's such a stark contrast for Native American women is a bit surprising to me. You know, I was really surprised by this data. You don't really hear about police-involved shootings with Indigenous people. Maybe that's just me being naive that I didn't realize how prevalent and how high the likelihood was for Indigenous people. I think all minorities, it's pretty high. Yeah, and I wonder why. I wonder why they're targeted. I mean, I don't know. Is targeted the right word, though? Or is it just... I don't think it's targeted as much as it is just a combination of all the things that we always talk about. Increased violence in these poverty rate communities, decreased public officials in those communities, decreased funding, not a lot of resources. Not a lot of mental health resources. Yep, not a lot of hospital, you know health resources in general, it seems like it would be more likely for violence to happen in a police interaction if they were undertrained and understaffed. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all of those things I think are contributing factors, but that's without yeah. knowing, you know, that's just my opinion without knowing the details of this story. Today, we're going to talk about Renee Davis. Renee was only 23 years old when her life came to a tragic end when deputies arrived at her home in October 2016 on the Muckleshoot Indian Reservation in Auburn, Washington, for a welfare check. As a quick reminder, um, we've talked about the Muckleshoot Indian Reservation before. Uh, The city of Auburn has a population of about 73,000 people, and King County is the largest and most populated county within the state. And the Muckleshoots are one of the largest Native American groups in the state. At the time of her death, she was a mother to three young children. And according to various reports, her boyfriend at the time had contacted authorities after he received a text message from Renee that said, quote, well, come get the girls or call 911. I'm about to shoot myself. Now, the boyfriend also showed authorities a text photo sent from Renee that showed fresh injuries, although it wasn't clear whether it was her in the photo or not, according to the sheriff's office. And after her death, her family did share that she was suffering from depression. I found this really good website called The Last Real Indians that gave a lot of detail regarding the tragedy that happened in this case. And I'll do my best to break it down for you guys. And before I get into it, though, I do want to mention that the Kings County Sheriff's Office in the past have responded to several uh, domestic violence calls to Renee's home, with even one officer who responded to several of the calls stating that, quote, DV assaults where the father of her two youngest girls was involved uh, were pretty brutal. Another officer shared that he knew Renee to be a victim of domestic violence, including being the officer to respond when her abuser had strangled her unconscious. 
On the evening of October 21st, 2016, officers were dispatched to a home with a suicidal, possibly armed female alone in the house with her two children, and this was Renee. According to court documents, without plan or additional backup, two deputies rushed Renee's door. Although there was no noise, no crying, no screaming, there were no sounds of distress at all coming from inside Renee's home. They stated they could see two of the youngest children inside. The third had been at a friend's house that night. The deputies, Officer Lewis and Officer Pritchett, started pounding on the door and the sides of the house loudly and aggressively. This yelling and begging persisted for approximately four minutes. The officers, having access to her phone number, never called her or tried in any calm or professional way to reach Renee. They did not communicate that they were concerned about her or that they were sent there by her boyfriend to check on her. Both deputies admit that when they entered, Renee was lying passively in her bed, covered in a blanket up to her neck, staring blankly at the door. They saw no evidence of Renee being injured at this time, even though they entered her bedroom with their guns drawn. They started shouting at her different commands. According to Officer Pritchett, Renee did not respond to these commands, but instead just said no. They did not try to calmly talk to her by their own admission, even though she did not move. Officer Lewis pointed his gun directly at Renee, while Officer Pritchett ripped the blanket covering off of her. Prior to this, they removed the two small children from the home, and when they entered, the children were standing outside. But when this occurred, her children somehow got back in the house and were right behind the officers when this happened. According to court documents, Officer Lewis had this to say, quote, Renee had a gun near her right hand, either lying on her bed or against her leg or somewhere drawn with the muzzle facing the foot of the bed. However, Officer Pritchett stated that, quote, Renee had a gun resting between her legs in her right hand. Now, both officers admit that the gun was not loaded and that the magazine for the gun was in Renee's left hand. The officers also stated that they yelled at Renee to drop the gun while simultaneously firing their guns at close range. After being shot three times, Renee slumped over and told officers, quote, it's not even loaded. After these two officers shot Renee in front of her two young children, they watched her fall to the floor. Less than one minute had transpired from when they coerced Renee's daughters to open the door until they shot Renee in her bed. Renee, who was five months pregnant at the time, was pronounced dead at the scene. The gun wasn't loaded. I don't know that you would recognize that immediately. They probably realized that the magazine wasn't in the gun after she passed. Was the, gra- the gun pointed towards the ground? Well, the court documents have statements from each officer that state either the gun was at her side or resting on her legs. Now, the proximity of where the bed was to the door, I don't really know that part. But I guess my question is, and it's a genuine one because this isn't my field, but when someone is suicidal, does that make them an immediate threat to other people or just themselves? So if she's suicidal and has a gun, she could be a threat to the children. Oh, that's a good point. Which is probably probably the only reason they could justify kind of rushing the house the way they did. Couldn't they have tased her? Not if she had a weapon. See, what I'm confused about is if Renee was lying passively in her bed, the gun wasn't pointed at them, and she was despondent in her manner, then where is the justification for shooting her? I mean, where was the threat? I mean, it definitely sounds like they either panicked or just like, you know, maybe we're not trained for that situation. Because to me, I would think that, you know, if someone was suicidal and you knew they were in a room, best response would be to get the children to safety, you know, Mm -hmm. make sure they're okay, make sure everyone else, you know, there's no one else in the home and then talk to the person either on the phone or in another manner. That way Mm -hmm. no one's at risk. 
it seems weird to me that I just kind of rushed in and pulled the blankets off of her, told her to drop her gun, and she said no. Then they shot her. Like, that just seems... Like, what are we missing here? Because I don't know what the de-escalation tactics are for police officers, because I can only imagine the kind of situations they go into blind and not really knowing where someone's mindset is. Well, that, and they're not trained medical professionals, and this is a medical crisis, mm-hmm. you know? Like, people, I don't think a lot of people realize that either, that, like, someone being suicidal and having those thoughts is a medical crisis, and they need medical treatment. But mm-hmm. in so many places, it's just not available. So then the yeah. police get called, and police aren't medical professionals. They're trained, you know, I don't even know how to describe what they do. It's not medical, though. <laughs> You know? <laughs> yeah. So what happened to um, the police officers? Were they like just suspended with pay? Were they the investigation brought back to work or were there charges? Um, from what I've read at the time, the two officers were placed on administrative leave, but they're using a law from the Washington state legislature that states it is a complete defense to any act to any action for damages for personal injury or wrongful death that the person injured or killed was engaged in the commission of a felony at the time of the occurrence, causing the injury or death, and the felony was approximate cause of injury or death. Interestingly enough, they use this law as their defense, and they go on to say, quote, We acknowledge that Davis's death is tragic and, and echo the trial court's sentiment of the application of that law. It is problematic because it precludes claims where law enforcement officers' actions and training may have been unreasonable given their knowledge that the individual they were confronting was suicidal and armed. And this was probably a time before body cams were a thing. Well, this was in 2016, so I don't know. Yeah, that's probably before that was really like a movement to have those put on people. So the officers now claim that Renee pointed the gun at them. They claim they were afraid of Renee after breaking in and forcing their way into her home, into her bedroom, yelling and with their guns pointed at her while she lay motionless in bed. But you know, regardless of all of that, the system failed her when so many domestic calls and abuses and recorded incidents and nothing was Mm -hmm. done. Was this tribal police or? Uh, It says the Kings County Sheriff's Office. So I would say no. I read an article um, who quoted Gabriel Galanda, who is a managing partner at a law firm. And he had represented a family of a Tulalip man who died after police used a taser on him. And he stated, quote, money's not being allocated to local government to train these cops. They don't know what they're doing. And then they're out on the reservation and in and in an Indian community. Deputies aren't equipped to deal with the mentally ill, especially the brown mentally ill. I think that quote says a lot because we had just mentioned earlier about lack of resources and you know the lack of training these police officers aren't mental health professionals and um, there's a lot of expectations on them when they go out into the field and um, come across a whole plethora of situations that they got to know how to handle and make quick judgments we talk about this Boshiashi. I, I think that you know we've said this before but Indian communities are just different you know, um, I don't mm-hmm. think that even as a police officer, you could police a non-native community the same you would a native community, you know, um, mm-hmm. just like for healthcare, you know, we talk about that all the time. It's like, you have to know how to navigate the community to be trusted here. So, yeah, 
I think that's important too, you know? You know, Maggie, we touched on this briefly when you covered Misty Upham's case and we had talked about the police response to her situation because it was clear Misty was in a mental health crisis. So I can absolutely agree that police should get more training on how to deal with the mentally ill. I read an article from hopkinsmedicine.org that said an estimated 26% of Americans ages 18 and older, that's about one in four adults, suffer from a diagnosable mental disorder in any given year. It said many people suffer from more than one mental disorder at a given time. In particular, depressive illnesses tend to co-occur with substance abuse and anxiety disorders. So if we're talking one in four, the probability that an officer is going to run into somebody from either a diagnosed or undiagnosed mental health issue is extremely high. I think that's part of the problem in all the communities, though, as we talk about it all the time, is the DV and the violence rates are so high in all these communities, but there's mm-hmm. just no resources to help combat that crisis. So then you end yeah. up with terrible scenarios like this, where she's in a mental health crisis, you know, her children are involved. It becomes this really chaotic scene, and ultimately, her life was ended. The stigma of mental health. Not only is there a lack of resources in some areas or in most areas, but also there's just a stigma around it, especially Native communities. You know, you're supposed to just tough it out. You're supposed to just get over it, you know. And it's just a perception on a lot of Native communities that it's just weak to show emotion. We need to get over that stigma, get over that barrier. What we need to do is stop normalizing abusive and toxic relationships because it gets so normalized that people don't even realize the situations they're in. You think about the joke like, oh, it's Rez love, hickeys and black eyes. Oh my God, I've never heard that. Or, you know, a man might have a black eye and hickeys. Oh, he's he's in, he's got that Rez love, you know, because mm-hmm. his woman will love on him and she'll beat him, but he'll stay around. And like the abusers, you know, like people are knowingly abusers in a domestic violence situation and people still, you know, gravitate towards that person. Yeah, it's like the chaos theory. What you grow up in is what you think is normal. So if you grow up with adults who, you know, they're, they have abusive relationships, alcohol dependency, alcohol in the home, drugs in the home. You know, then the children learn that that's how you're supposed to cope with things. You know, instead of talking about things, we we bury our emotions and we cope with them through a different mechanism, through a different outlet. You know, then the next generation grows up thinking that's how it's supposed to be. So the website I had mentioned earlier, The Last World Indians, there was an uh, article written by Ray Rose who had written a beautiful piece about Renee and she actually spent time visiting with family members and just shared a beautiful piece about who she was. And by all accounts, Renee was described as a beautiful, vibrant young woman. She was a hunter and a fisher and practiced her cultural traditions and she survived foster care and domestic violence and addiction. She was mourning for her mother and trying to rebuild her life in 2016. And Ray Rose stated that any one of us who has survived traumatic life events feels sad and can lose sight momentarily of the good surrounding us. We all ask for help in many ways, but the undeniable fact is when we ask for help, when we are sad or say we want to give up, it is because we want understanding. Wanting someone to care comes in many forms. This includes claiming suicidal intention. 
It does not mean we want to die necessarily. More likely, it means we need someone to show they care. It is often a call for help, a desperate plea. Depression, anxiety, and sadness are in so many trauma survivors. I think that's a really good point and all very true. Yeah. I don't know if you guys have ever had like a personal experience with someone who has, you know, really significant depression, but that is very true that a lot of times, you know, the, the behaviors they display is just for attention and because they're in pain. Ray Rose concluded her article and stated, quote, those left behind are left to wonder what might have been. We are all deeply saddened by the loss of Renee Davis, an indigenous woman of the Muckleshoot tribe. Renee Davis can never be replaced or forgotten. Say her name for true change. Demand justice for Renee Davis. Do not let officers Pritchett and Lewis forget what they have taken from us the night they shot Renee Davis multiple times and watched her bleed to death. To them, it is just another dead indigenous woman of color. To us, it is another murdered indigenous sister we will carry forward in our fight for indigenous rights. You said she, they shot her three times. Why did they shoot her three times? Why wasn't one enough? I mean, if they're both grown men, she's a woman. And, and I understand she had a gun. And five months pregnant. Right. So I understand the fear of having a gun. But why shoot her three times? Not to shot justify it, but just some perspective. Usually when an officer shooting happens, it's a minimum of at least like two shots because when one officer shoots, the other will shoot. It's just like a, it's, I a, didn't know that it's like an instinct thing. If you're in an, a situation like that, where, you know, someone could be, could have a weapon and um, discharge it, then you immediately, as soon as you heard fire would discharge yours. Okay. So I looked it up and according to Wikipedia, it's called a contagious shooting. And it's a sociological phenomenon in which one person firing on a target can induce others to begin shooting. Often the subsequent shooters will not know why they are firing. Did their police report state why they shot her three times? They said that she raised her gun at them and they feared for their lives. Oh. It's just really sad because regardless of anything, she needed help. It's just sad because you can tell she had a hard life, you know? Mm-hmm. And I hate that her children had to witness any of that. Yeah, that has to be very traumatic for them. What And what's really sad is that this is just going to further perpetuate that fear of authority and that fear of police in her daughters. Regardless of the circumstances, they're going to grow up knowing that the police killed their mother. Yeah, those kids will probably never. I mean, if they can remember any of it, even if they don't, just by what they're told, they'll never trust, you know, police officers again. And that's a shame. Because there are some really good police officers out there. Absolutely. But there's also some really bad ones. Thank you for listening to We Are Resilient. For links to information found for this episode, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at We Are Resilient Podcast. Send us an email at weareresilientpod at gmail.com. Or visit us at www.war-podcast.com. Thank you.